Real godliness is something that runs deep. It's something that is so woven into a person's character that it is his character. You prick him and he bleeds godliness. You shake him as hard as you like and nothing but goodness spills out of him. He just effortlessly and unselfconsciously oozes the presence of Jesus. You meet and talk to a godly man or woman and you leave refreshed, cleansed, uplifted, encouraged, blessed, rejoicing in the Lord. Wouldn't it be good to be one of those people? It's what you want, isn't it? come, I think, to the end of our studies on Galatians 5. So I'm going to summarize what we have learned, maybe highlight some of the main points, maybe tie up one or two loose ends for you, and hopefully pull the whole lot together. Galatians 5 begins with a reminder in verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Or it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's a reminder that because of what Jesus has done for you, you're free. You're free from condemnation. Nobody can ever say again that you're a guilty sinner. Jesus has paid the penalty for every sin you ever did and every sin you have yet to do. You're free from the power that sin has had over you. When you're tempted, you do not have to do it. You're free from the grip of Satan. Satan can tempt you. He can try to scare you, but he can't touch you unless God allows it. You're free from anxiety and care. You don't have to worry about anything. In fact, you don't have a worry in the world. And, and this is Paul's particular concern in this verse, you are free from the curse of having to keep laws, rules, or regulations in order to please God. Faith in Jesus is what saves you. And no amount of goodness will make you any more saved And no amount of badness can make you any less saved. You're saved by faith alone. Isn't that wonderful? Just pause and wonder at that. Wonder and worship at the goodness of God. But it's more than a reminder Paul adds a warning to the reminder because he knows the kind of us. Jesus made you free, he says. He went to all that trouble so that you could be free. Therefore, enjoy your freedom. Jesus paid a high price for it, and he is never going to take it away from you again. Do not let yourself be enslaved to rule-keeping ever again. 
If you go back to keeping rules, thinking that that will impress God, he says in verse 2, Christ will profit you nothing. He says in verse 3, if you go back to keeping rules, thinking that that will impress God, you had better keep the whole law and keep it all perfectly. And he says, if you go back to that old rule-keeping, you have cut yourself off from Christ. You have fallen from grace. That's pretty strong stuff. What is it with us anyway? Why do we want to have rules for everything? Do you think might it be a pride thing? Just tell me what to do. I can do it. I'm in control. Surely you know by now that keeping even the simplest rules isn't possible. You have tried it so often and you have failed. At least you cannot keep those rules to the standard that God requires or that will please him. Well then, no more law-keeping to please God. But of course then there's that problem that I still want to keep God's law because you see the Holy Spirit has given me a new heart. I am born again. And that new heart, me, now, I desire more than anything to be righteous. It's the way I am. I, I love the Lord. I love his ways. I want to be like him. I want to please him. The Holy Spirit has done that to me. It's not natural to me. The Holy Spirit has changed me. He has given me a new heart. And that's maybe another good point to, to pause and to wonder at the goodness and the grace of God. And maybe even to think a little bit as well and ask, well, just how strong is that desire to be righteous? If you're saved at all, there should be evidence of it. That's what happens when you become a Christian, that change. So the Holy Spirit has put a new desire in me, a new heart in me that longs to be righteous. Well, then shouldn't I just say now, well, thank you, Jesus, for setting me free. But if it's okay with you, I'll just go back to doing my best to be righteous again, because that's what I want to do. Can I have some new rules, please? Some New Testament rules, maybe you could call them. Laws for people who are saved by faith. Well, Paul says, no, that's not okay with, with Jesus. That's not the way we go about it. Because there is an alternative, you see. He says in verse 5, We through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Not by keeping rules, by faith. Because of what the Holy Spirit has done to us, we are eagerly waiting to be righteous. That will be a good day when we are, when there will be no more sin. You know, we ask the question, maybe I've said this before, will we know one another in heaven? And I do believe there's reason to believe that we will. I'm pretty sure that I'll recognize you, but you might have a hard job recognizing me. Because I'll be very different without my sin. In fact, I think I'll probably have a hard job recognizing myself when I get to heaven. But that's what we are eagerly waiting for, that day when we will be perfectly righteous in the presence of Christ. But meanwhile, Paul says, we don't slavishly keep laws. He says we live by faith. Now, I don't need to spend time on that. You know what living by faith is 
I hope. Living by faith, believing what God has said, living like it is true. God has promised you heaven. He has told you he will always be with you and he will bring you safely there no matter what. He has told you that no one and nothing can harm you. He has told you that he is working for your good in every situation. He knows your every need. He will give you the longings of your heart. He has promised you all those things. And faith says, yes, Lord, I believe those promises. They are all absolutely rock solid, sure, dependable, true. And when you're thoroughly convinced of those promises then the world looks very different, doesn't it? I mean, it really doesn't matter very much anymore. The world is a temporary thing. All this stuff that we see, all the possessions that we have, all the work that goes on, it's going to pass away someday, relatively soon. It's a very short time in comparison to eternity. The world doesn't really mean very much anymore. Possessions don't matter, or wealth or position, or exam results, or career. It's all just a means to an end. There's nothing about the world that is frightening anymore. There are no worries because God's word is sure. And when you see the world with those eyes of faith, then doing what God says is, well, it's so clearly and obviously the only thing to do, isn't it? It's the best and the happiest thing. When you have faith in God's promises like that, it's no longer about keeping rules. It's a joy to walk with God. It's what your heart desires. So do you eagerly want to be righteous? Then the thing to do is to build up your faith and live by it, and you will see that righteousness growing. And it won't be a burden or a chore. It will be a joy and a delight. Keeping laws, on the other hand, well, that avails nothing. Verses 5 and 6. We, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, law-keeping, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. How does faith work through love to bring righteousness? Well, there are many things that get in the way of love. Sometimes it's busyness. You just don't have time. Sometimes it's self-defense. People take advantage of you. People mistreat you. People have a go at you. And you feel you have to protect yourself. Sometimes accusations are made. You feel you have to vindicate yourself. That gets in the way of love. Fear gets in the way of love. Love means making yourself vulnerable sometimes, and fear puts up barriers and runs away and and holds back. Shame is another thing. I'm thinking to myself, if people knew what I am really like, so in order to stop them getting to know what I'm really like, I I keep my distance and I'm not love, I'll not get too close. Or sometimes it's selfishness. Maybe we don't call it selfishness, but that's what it is. There are things that we want for ourselves, greed, competitiveness, and those things are are barriers to loving one another. Things like that, they get in the way and they stop us being loving people. But do you see, faith removes all of those things. 
If, for example, you believe that God is in sovereign control of your life and all your circumstances, then you'll not be too busy to love people. You'll prioritize what has to be done. You'll do your best and you'll be content to say, Lord, I've done my best today. Didn't get it all done, but that's okay because you're in control and I know before you I've done what I could. If you believe that he'll never leave you, that you will not be put to shame, that he watches over you and protects you, then you know you have nothing to fear. And the writer of Hebrews says, he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. And so you don't need to defend yourself and keep your distance anymore. You can risk being vulnerable. You don't need to vindicate yourself if you believe that God has cleansed and forgiven you and clothed you in righteousness, and if you believe that God is a God of justice and justice will be done, and if you believe that God is working for your good and doing what is the very best for you, you don't need to selfishly grab things and greedily take things for yourself and step over other people to get to where you want to be because you know your God will supply all your needs. And actually, if you think about it for long enough, you'll realize that all unloving behavior can be traced back to unbelief in the promises of God. All unloving behavior is traced back to unbelief in the promises of God. And living by faith will always show itself in love for others. Faith and love go together. 1 John 3, 23, and this is the commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandments. And in that verse, if you look closely at it, you'll see it's one commandment, not two. Believe on his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment, not commandments. Faith works through love. How does it produce righteousness through love? Well, Paul answers that in verse 14. After reinforcing his warning about being caught up in law-keeping in verses 7 to 13, he says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that's how we go after the righteousness our hearts eagerly long for. Not by keeping rules, but instead we trust God, we believe his word and live like we do, and therefore we love others and love fulfills the law. And since God is love, when we are loving, God is glorified in us. But then there's another problem, isn't there? The flesh. Remember we described it as that big lump of meat you live in. Some of us have more of it than others. And it has attitudes and habits and desires and lusts. And the flesh lusts against the spirit, Paul says in verse 17. The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. And if you give in to the flesh, it leads to all kinds of nasty stuff. Verses 19 to 21. The works of the flesh are evident. 
adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now Paul says, here's how to avoid fulfilling the lusts of the flesh and how to avoid those sins and the likes of them. He says in verse 16, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We spent a few weeks on that phrase, walk in the spirit, didn't we? Trying to get to grips with it. What does it mean? What does it look like in everyday life? How do you know if you're walking in the Spirit? How do you know if you're not? And remember, it means to walk in line with the Spirit. Hmm. That sounds like read your Bible inspired by the Spirit. Read your Bible, pick out the rules and keep them. Sounds like living by rules again. But look, Paul says... If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Being led by the Spirit is something the Spirit does. Walking, that's that's what I do. Leading, that is what the Spirit does. The Spirit takes the initiative. He stirs up that new nature that he has put within you. He stirs up holy and good desires. He applies gentle pressure. He nudges this way and that way. That's what leading is. And this is not legalism, this is about relationship. It's about the Spirit leading and me walking along in step with Him. This is about being closely in tune with God's Spirit. It's about being aware of and sensitive to the Spirit's leading. This is about the Holy Spirit prompting me and me responding freely to His leading because His way is what my heart desires anyway. So walking in the Spirit, then, it's about relationship with Jesus. It's about being in tune with him through his Spirit and joyfully hearing and responding to him. He leads from within, and his word, the Bible, is a check. It's a reliable reference point. The Bible's no longer a set of rules imposed on us. It warns us when we're in danger of going astray so that our hearts say, yes, that's exactly what I wanted to know. And the result again is happy, free obedience. I guess some of you are thinking at this point, well, wait a minute, hold it there. The Bible's full of rules, isn't it? Commands, they're everywhere. And it's clear that God expects them to be obeyed. They're not just in the Old Testament. The New Testament is full of them too. How can you say the Bible is not a rule book? What am I going to do with all of those commands in Scripture? I think we already answered that one, but let me try and make it a little bit more clear. If you look at the commands of Scripture as rules and commands that you have to obey in order to please God, then that is exactly what they are. And they're going to be a burden to you. And keeping them is going to be a chore. And you will constantly struggle to keep them. And you will be one unhappy Christian. You know that. It's been your experience. But if you come to those commands as someone who has been born again by faith in the Lord Jesus... 
You know then that by faith, by God's grace, through faith, God is already pleased with you. Couldn't be more pleased. Jesus has satisfied him completely. And you come to him as someone who desperately wants to be righteous. So you come to God saying to yourself, I desperately want to be righteous. Sometimes I get confused. Sometimes it's hard to distinguish between the leading of the Spirit and all the other voices that are telling me what to do. Lord, I need some guidance. I need an external reference point so that I can be sure what righteousness is, so that I can be sure that this is the Spirit's leading and not the old flesh flexing its muscles again. And God says, okay, you've got it. It's called the Bible. And it's full of useful little rules to keep you right, if that's what you want. And so then you pick up your Bible and you find the appropriate rule for the situation that you're in and your little heart leaps and says, yes, that's exactly what I wanted to know. It chimes with what's within you because it's consistent with that heart that longs for righteousness that the Holy Spirit has put within you because he has already written his law upon your heart. Don't you just love God's law? Anyway, back to Galatians 5 again. Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Walking in the Spirit is a relationship. It's about being in tune with him and joyfully hearing and responding to him. He leads from within and the Bible is a check, a reliable external reference point. But that didn't quite satisfy us about this phrase, walking in the Spirit. We wanted to know more about it. So we look closely at verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. If you walk in the Spirit, that is the fruit. Those are the things that grow in your life. Love wells up within you and overflows in loving attitudes and selfless actions. Joy too. Joy in the Lord wells up and overflows in praise. Peace rules in your heart. Anxiety and worry, they're gone. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Christians who walk in the Spirit are nice, good, thoroughly decent people. People you feel safe and comfortable with. And you can control yourself. You can say no to sin. If those things are growing in your life, then you are walking in the Spirit. And if they're not growing or at the point when they're not evident, well, the inescapable conclusion is that at that point you are not walking in the Spirit. You need to stop and back up and think, well, where have I gone wrong here? So the fruit of the Spirit, remember, it's not a list of commands. It's not be loving. It's not be joyful and all the rest of it. The fruit of the Spirit is an indicator of whether or not you are walking in the Spirit. But thinking about that helped us to work out some other things about what it means to walk in the Spirit. 
It showed us that this relationship with Jesus has to be a very, very close one so that you're walking in the Spirit every moment of every day. So often and so easily, the old tempers and habits and attitudes of the flesh get the better of us. We need to be very close to the Lord. We need to be very careful. And thinking about the fruit of the Spirit showed us too that walking in the Spirit goes hand in hand with living by faith. If we lose sight of the realities God's Word points us to, then the world and the stuff in it start to look big and important, and anxiety and worry and selfish desires and complaining and joylessness start to creep back in again. We need to be living by faith constantly, keep trusting. And we worked out too that if you want to keep walking in the Spirit, the flesh has to be put in its place. Chapter 5, verse 24, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. They put it on a cross. They say to it, flesh, as far as I'm concerned, you're dead meat. You're done with. I don't have to give in to you. And with God's help, you can shout and scream at me all you like. I am not going to go the way you are leading me. Well, that in summary then is the journey we've come on. You've been born again by the Spirit. No more law-keeping. Instead, we live by faith. Faith, working through love, brings righteousness. The flesh is a problem, but if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That's the way to become a godly person. Remember where we started? Godliness. Such a rare, rare thing. Oh, that it were more common. Occasionally someone crosses your path and something about his or her manner is very attractive. It's hard to describe, but there's something about them that you notice right away. Love and gentleness. Joy. Peaceful, calm, strong faith, quiet, easy confidence in the Lord, self under control, kindness, goodness. And they make an impression on you, but the impression is not of themselves. Instead, they radiate the presence of Jesus. Do you know anybody like that? Have you ever seen it? Sometimes, because godliness is such a rare thing, we mistake other things for it. We meet people who are always busy in Christian things. People who have made sacrifices in their lifetime. People who speak pious words. Even people who are wise and and gentle in, in their ways. We meet them and we're inclined to say, oh, such a godly person. But no, not necessarily. You see, it's possible to be a very busy Christian, do lots of Christian stuff, give up lots of stuff for the Lord, talk holy talk, you know the kind of things I mean, even to be wise and to be naturally timid, and yet not possess true godliness. Because real godliness is something that runs deep. It's something that is so woven into a person's character that it is his character. It is what he is. 
You prick him and he bleeds godliness. You shake him as hard as you like and nothing but goodness spills out of him. He just effortlessly and unselfconsciously oozes the presence of Jesus. Real godliness is something that's very powerful. Paul wrote to Timothy about people having a form of godliness but denying its power. You meet and talk to a godly man or woman and you leave refreshed, cleansed, uplifted, encouraged, blessed, rejoicing in the Lord. Wouldn't it be good to be one of those people? It's what you want, isn't it? Lord grant that we might be known as godly men and women. And I do hope that I've helped you to come a few steps nearer to it. I hope I've come a few steps nearer to it. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us a glimpse of something lovely. It's something that we want. It's something that we desire for ourselves, and it's good that we should. Because really, when we describe godliness, we are describing the Lord Jesus. And oh, how we long to be like him in all our ways. Grant us, Lord, that it might be so, for we pray in Jesus' name.